where you stand on issues, how you live your life, and how much good you can do in the world are greater challenges than a lunar mission. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands. Matthew Russell and Julio Prayer. Oh, yeah, baby. Our warden. Our warden. Our first ever Apollo astronaut interview. Our one and only. Much missed, of course, RIP. But get this, Julio. It's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15 today on the 26th of 50 July. 50 years already. Feels yeah. like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still wasn't born at this point, but only just. Eight years before I was born. Wow. It's getting closer. Yeah, it is getting closer, isn't it? Yeah. But <laughs> it's the first proper Apollo mission because all the other ones were just testing it out. Whereas uh-huh. this, is the fir- this is the first one that actually goes to do some science, a J mission, as they called it. And the first one to carry the, the rover. Which has got to be the coolest space thing ever. They freaking drove a rover on the moon. <laughs> I, I, have to, I would have preferred to fly one of those than on Apollo 11, I think. Yeah, I think Just Apollo 15. Just for the 15. fun of it. Yeah, can you imagine it? Those it's guys so good. were having a yeah. good time there. Definitely. Def- and doing science. Of course, Al Warden wasn't one of them. He became, I think he became the most remote human of all time at that point. More remote than, than the other Apollo uh, command module pilots. I always thought it was the guys from Apollo 13 because they had to do the... The gravity assist. Yeah, but they're back. all to, yeah they're all together though, aren't they? Our warden's on his own. Sure, but then you can see who was sitting exactly where <laughs> the pointed <laughs> or where the furthest. Yeah, no, but but <laughs> I, I, I think he also did one of the most remote um, spacewalks as well—a spacewalk not in low Earth orbit. That's a good EVA, isn't it? If you're doing it out there, that's. Not groundbreaking, that's space-breaking. That's space-breaking, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough yeah. about that. Uh, enough um, about that, but not enough about human spaceflight. Not enough about human spaceflight, because that's what this is all going to be about. Lots well, of human all, spaceflight. Uh, yeah, there's Lots a lot of, of human spaceflight these couple of weeks. Eh? Not just human spaceflight, but commercial human spaceflight. Julio, who's our guest? Because this is an absolutely epic interview. Ken Davidian. Of FAA fame, <laughs> FAA stands for for um, Federal Aviation Administration. It wasn't always called that, of course. It was at one point called the Civil Aeronautics Administration. Just, just, just to confuse things. Yeah, but however, um, why <laughs> I wanted to bring Ken into the show is not. I mean, yes, his role at the FAA it's 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 key for the type of work that he does, but. He also has been, well, we go in details during the interview uh, when he, he gives us a description of his career. And, and you see, the, he, he has been all over the place. And I like to say that he's the one that has been looking at this industry of space tourism for more than a decade now, analyzing it. And he knows a lot on, about how the sausage is made. Mm. And I thought it would be interesting to get that. And And... He's not shy, as you will find out. No, I mean, it, it, 
for me, it's it was really surprising having someone from. I guess when you talk about a regulator, which at the FAA are really, I just didn't realise like that kind of secondary role of also encouraging people to use the resource. I think that's really interesting. So I would say this is a quite a particularly long interview. Yeah. But it seems to be a pattern every time I'm on the show. <laughs> I, I think I extend your interviews. Yeah, you, you tend to make me stay up until about 3 o'clock in the morning editing these things as well, Julio. You're the worst. I, apo- stroke, I apologize. Stroke the best. I apologize. But... <laughs> <laughs> we, we do it for the audience, right? Yeah. Um, but before we go into the interview, uh, a few items that happened this week. I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to go through some of them. There, I mean, there, there, there is quite a lot of news this week. I mean, one of them is, of course, the, the Norca module having a little bit of problems getting to the ISS. Which Put, is carrying the European robotic arm. I know. Which that is we discussed cool, yeah. in the past. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool, that, isn't it? I hope yeah. it gets there. I hope uh, so, too. Um, <laughs> so this but, week, this week we had we had the Blue Origin flight. Yeah, the blue, well, I mean, a few days ago, yes. Yeah, and and that, I guess that's the big one, isn't it? And and we should after the interview, we should have a little chat about about the controversy around that because why not? We, we, why not? Because we because we we do we do have a little delve into it with I, the. I uh, love in, controversy. Yeah, I, know I love controversy, but as and you said, let's save let, everything related to Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin for after the interview. I, just, I think the interview is a good yeah. way to have a, a view of these two events, and then we can go deeper yeah. with our own opinions after exactly. the interview. What do you think? Exactly. Well, no, totally. I just thought before we did it, I just wanted to put into context just how many human flights into space there have been this year, because it's been quite a lot. And, but not, but they're not commercial. So, I mean, the, the big news is obviously the two commercial ones in a row with Branson and Bezos having a little race, a billionaire race, which is, I guess, where the controversy is the billionaire. No, I mean, bit. define commercial. Technically, the Virgin Galactic flight is not commercial. Who bought a ticket to fly on that? Yeah, yeah, but we talk about that with Ken. Okay, then we go and yeah, let, that let's see what Ken, yeah, no, we can go into it afterwards, but. The question is, what is special about this particular Virgin Galactic flight, given that it's not the first one? But, okay, Ooh. let's go into that yeah, later. Yeah. yeah, yeah, let's go into it later. I, I, but I just thought, Humans Into Space started this year on the 9th of April, 2021, with three astronauts going to the Soyuz, on, on a Soyuz going to the ISS. And then only a couple of weeks later, four astronauts on Crew 2, on a Crew Dragon, to the ISS, and then a couple more on Shenzhou 12 to the Chinese space station on the 17th of June. So that's quite busy, isn't it? There's a lot of people. Now, there's three different, like, human space launch systems this year when there's only been one for ages. It's, there's certainly good news, yes. Yeah, and, there's, and, and I guess two more systems taking people into space as well. Although, as you said, Virgin Galactic have been sending people into space, and I put that in inverted commas, depending on who you ask, um, since the 13th of December 2018. Is that what you said? That, 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 that's my, yes, the, few, the first, what you could consider their first crewed space flight was on 13 December 2018. And another piece of trivia... 
mm-hmm. that I heard this week. It's not really news, but it's just nice to know that uh, I think the record of uh, maximum number of people in space at the same time was reached or there was a record in this week so, or last week with the, so one of these flights, yes. There's seven people on the ISS. Seven on the ISS plus tra- three in the Chinese one. So basically seven plus three is ten. I mean, I'm an engineer, I know this. So 14 is the most amount of people that have ever been in space? Yeah, currently you have Russian, US, French, Japanese and Chinese in space. And, and as I was saying, when Blue Origin flew, you had yeah. 14 people in space for about 10 minutes. And when Virgin Galactic flew, you had the two pilots plus uh, four, was it four people? Yeah, four, yeah four, four passengers. So at that point, you had 16 people in space. 16. So that's so 16 is the maximum and must be the most amount of different nations as well. Chinese, Japanese, French, English. American, Russian. I don't recall the all the nationalities of the of the Virgin Galactic flight. Sixteen yeah. people in space. Yeah, that's that's. I didn't spot that. Good spot. Good spot, Mister Julio Prayer. Not only that, by the end of the year, we might have yet another human transport system as well with the Boeing CST one hundred, which is going to try and do another test flight this month. And then hopefully an actual crude test flight near the end of the year. Let's cross our fingers that it happens. The more the merrier on this. So yeah, so there'll be quite a lot of different systems that are able to get into uh, into space. Although the Virgin Galactic, we're learning, we're learning from the lesson of being what so many years. I mean, not stuck with Soyuz because Soyuz is a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to go to space. But let's say on a single point of failure. I suppose the Chinese have always had their Shenzhou, haven't they, during that period? It just hasn't been used much. Not that much. And no, not for the space station. Not for no. the ISS. No, true. Julio, let's stop messing about. Shall we just listen to Dr. Ken Davidian's interview? Because it's long. We'd better get going. Sí, escuchémosla. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace Back into space! Julio and I are here with Dr. Ken Davidian from the FAA, the Office of Commercial Space Transportation. Is that right, Ken? That's absolutely right. As Julio said, you've got a very interesting career. Can you (laughs) give us the highlights? I mean, I started out as a government employee. I I, I graduated in 1983, almost 40 years ago, um, from... The, the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I had grown up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is north by about two hours. And uh, the job I got was at NASA Lewis Research Center, now called NASA Glenn. And my job was to design liquid rocket engine nozzles and to analyze the performance of liquid rocket engines. I mean, rocket engineering, I'll say. And it was a hoot. It was a it was a dream job. Who wouldn't want to go work for NASA? Uh, the shuttle had just started flying, uh, and, and so it was it was absolutely fantastic. I was there for like sixteen years or so, and great educational opportunities there. I, immediately after uh, starting work, they offered us the opportunity to get a master's degree. So I went to Case Western Reserve to get a master's, just down the street in Cleveland. Uh, 
And then in 1989, I got the chance to go to International Space University. For um, It was a 10-week uh, summer program at the time. And so there's the second one. There was the second one in Strasbourg. So uh, so that was, so NASA was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then that was in 1989. And then in 1997, they said, Ken, do you want to go work at ISU for three years? Because I was a big Francophile. I'm a Francophone. My, I've been going to France since 1975. That's coming up on 50 years now. And so they knew that the bosses at NASA knew that. And so they said, Ken, do you and your wife want to go to France for three years to help work with, with ISU? I was like, heck yeah. So um, loaded up the truck and we went to um, Strasbourg. And so I got to work in Strasbourg for three years, helping put together the summer program for Houston and Cleveland. I helped write the proposal to bring it to Cleveland. So I helped do it in Houston, ran it in Cleveland, and then stayed on for a third year, ran it in Thailand. Came back to NASA. It had changed its name by then to NASA Glenn. I came back to NASA and it wasn't as exciting, let's say, anymore. We had outgrown the garden, one of our managers said. So um, we actually quit the government and went and worked for an ISU alumni company called Paragon. Tabor McCallum had started that. He had been in um, the first summer session. And so I went and worked for Paragon for a year, actually moving to Berlin to work in the cargo lifter program, a large airship, 240 meters long, 60 meters in diameter. Um, and so that was a hoot living in West in uh, Eastern Berlin for a year and a half. And that was great. But like all great airship companies, it totally tanked. Um, and uh, so I ended up getting a job at XPRIZE Foundation, yet another ISU-related company. So I was there for about 15 months, and they were having some hardships. They actually cut us to halftime after about six months. My wife and I were substitute teaching at local high schools. Um, I was teaching math to eighth graders. At the worst, so the thing is, you get a call at 5.30 in the morning, and they say, hey, Ken, we'd like you to come in today. It's like, great. What do you want me to teach? Girls phys ed. It's like, holy crap, this was totally like, uh, you know, a shock. So once, or they know what they say, they say, we're going to have you teach English. It's great. So you're sitting there trying to remember everything you recall from literature and stuff. And you get there and they say, no, it's going to be girls phys ed. Um, so most of the time I was doing like junior high math and, and I did this for the, about six months. And then I remember one day I was in the library with a bunch of students. And of course they think you're an idiot because you don't know their names and all that sort of stuff. One of the students came up to me in the library and said, uh, Mr. Davidian, what is, do you know what the acceleration due to gravity is? I said, sure, it's 9.8 meters per second squared or 32.2 uh, feet per second squared. And they go, oh my God, how did you know that? I said, well, I'm an engineer. And he said, what are you doing here? And that's when the light bulb went off. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're kind of right. What am I doing here? So, uh, so actually, um, my wife had gotten the job back at Paragon, but as a consultant to Boeing, putting together the connection by Boeing in-flight in, um, uh, internet program together. This is 2002 or so, 2003. Um, so she was in Irvine, California. I ended up getting a job back with Paragon, but in Tucson, California, moved to Tucson. We had just rented a house when she got a job at NASA Wash headquarters in Washington. So we had to quit the job in Paragon. And, and if an, every, whenever anybody asks about Tabor or talks about Tabor and Jane, um, I tell them that they are the best bosses I've ever had that I've had to quit from twice. Um, I, I, we, we quit when our contracts were over or when, you know, the job was done and, and I'm sure they wanted to keep us, but we felt we were a financial burden to them. So we would quit and they are a fantastic 
pair of people and the companies they run are absolutely fantastic. But anyways, yeah, they, they have their, their current company is space uh, perspective. It's called space perspective. Another space tourism company. Yeah. So after, uh, after Paragon, um, they moved on to world to worldview, which actually first worked with Eustache, Eric Eustache, um, who's the guy they, um, they built a space suit around him and they put him, they, Arbiner linked him to a balloon and they sent him up, hooked up to a balloon up to 150 or whatever thousand feet. And they let him go and he skydived back down. Uh, Grant Anderson, who's now the president of Paragon, um, came and stayed with us at our house. And so I've got a picture of him hanging on the wall with Eric Eustace standing in front of the spacesuit that's now in the Udvar AZ um, Air and Space Museum, part of the National Air and Space Museum here in Washington. But uh, um, Worldview was created when Tabor and Jane left and created this another um, balloon company to carry, the idea was to carry a, a capsule that would carry people up to high altitudes for tourism purposes. It kind of morphed into a pers persistent surveillance kind of platform for um, homeland security and some scientific payloads. So Tabor and Jane, who still wanted to do the human space flight activities, they split off again and started Space Perspective. And they just recently did a, a test flight of their uh, test capsule Neptune 1 up to altitude. And so they're currently in the process of taking the lessons learned from that test and build, building it into their next uh, capsule. Yeah, spoiler, I, I have a, Jane have a, has agreed already to be on the show in the near future, so... Jane is absolutely wonderful. Jane is, you're going to have a great time. It's going to be a 10 time better show than this one because she's, <laughs> she's, she's, she's the goddess. So, so, after, okay. so after Cargo Lifter, after Cargo Lifter, we went to XPRIZE. After XPRIZE, we went back to Paragon. I was in Tucson. My wife was in Boeing. She got a job at headquarters, NASA headquarters in Washington. So I was what they called the lagging spouse. I came to Washington and she was so pissed because I was, she's going, aren't you going to look for a job? It's going, I'll look for one when I get there. Two days after I get there, I get an email from a friend at Glenn who said, hey, you know, I see that you worked at XPRIZE. NASA's starting a prize program. The guy at headquarters, his name is so-and-so, why do you contact him? So I contacted the guy. Turns out he was an ISU alum named Brent Sponberg. He hired me. I, it took him a while to get me on as a contractor, but they brought me on as a contractor. And so then Brent ended up working on, he actually, Brent worked on putting together what became the TOTS program. It was originally called the Black Knight program. And Brent was putting together all the PowerPoints on that. So then I took, I kind of took over the, as a contractor, took over the management of the Centennial Challenges program. So ran Centennial Challenges, the Lunar Lander Challenge, the Space Elevator Challenge, the Astronaut Club Challenge, the Lunar Regolith Challenge, the Personal Air Vehicle Challenge. Um, so we ran this for about four years. And then uh, one, in 2007 or 2008, the IAC was in Scotland. And I had submitted a bunch of papers and they all got accepted. I wasn't there. I, 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 NASA wouldn't let me because um, I was a civil servant at the time, but NASA had a limit of 50 people, five zero people. And, and once you send the, the NASA administrator and his uh, entourage, you're already at like 35, 40 right. people. Well, and, and yeah, so. so I, I used to organize a, a workshop for young professionals. And to get young professionals from NASA was very difficult because once you. You have the, the, as you said, the, that limit of 50 gets gets covered very quickly by the big guys. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, and every every center director and then their couple of chosen few. And so so they didn't send me. And I was I was running a, a workshop. Of, so um, 
as you know, NASA at the time was um, putting together Ares 1 and Ares 5. Ares 5 kind of looks like SLS. Ares 1. Um, and they had these series of conferences, the Global Exploration Conferences. And uh, the first one was in Disney World. The second one was in Houston, I want to say. And the third one was in Denver. And at the Denver one, I had a panel that was talking about commercial space. And I, I gave it a great presentation. I gave a presentation. I don't say it was great, but he equated. It was called Old McNASA. And talking about how old McNasa had a farm and, you know, they didn't recognize these crazy farmers growing these crazy crops off on the side and stuff. So anyways, on my panel, I had a bunch of people. And one of the people I had was uh, George Neald, who was the head of uh, the associate administrator of the Office of Commercial Space Transportation at the time at the FAA. And so um, after the panel, um, we were out in the hall talking and he said, hey, Ken, I was griping. I was griping about how I wanted to go to Scotland and I couldn't go. And so um, George said, Hey, Ken, if you wanted, if you came to AST, I would send you to, to the IAC. And I said, okay. So I left NASA, went to AST. And so ever since Daejeon, which is uh, South Korea, starting in 2009, I've been going to the IAC. You mentioned the AAC. I don't remember what that is. Uh, AST. AST is the organizational acronym for the Office of Commercial Space Transportation. So the office How does that work? <laughs> How does that work? It's called It's called government efficiency. Um, <laughs> when the Office of Commercial Space Transportation was created, I think in 1985, it was at the Department of Transportation. And it was called the OCST, for the Office of Commercial Space Transportation, which makes total sense. And then, I forget when it was, 1994 or something, it got moved from the Department of Transportation down, to one, down into the FAA. The FAA is one of like seven or eight different agencies that are part of the Department of Transportation, where nodes is we're known as a mode of transportation. The other ones are like highways, railways, uh, maritime pipelines, and hazardous materials, uh, that kind of stuff. And so, um, AST, uh, FAA, because it's aviation, every single one of its organizational abbreviations starts with the letter A. So A is the it means aviation, and then ST means space transportation. Yeah, so uh, there we go. If you were in highways, if you were in the highway administration, all your organizational abbreviations would start with H. And so it's it NASA got away from using codes like this because they're hard to communicate. They cause confusion. It ends up with a five-minute discussion like this every time somebody <laughs> asks a question. You know? And we've sent we've sent we've sent the listeners to sleep now. <laughs> That's kind of well, not my job. Everyone knows that I love a good initialization, though. No, I mean, uh, I, 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 I have that in, in, in my office. I, I even, we, we went through a few reorganizations, so I even forgot what my acronym is at the moment. STS, that's for sure, which means space transportation. Not space transportation systems, not space transportation services, but STS. everyone gets confused. Uh, so it's just, it's just because the IT system requires three letters. So it was like, we are space transportation, space transportation, ST. Let's just add an S. Add an S. Now, and this is where I hate yeah. when IT, it's the tail wagging the dog. These are supposed, we're not supposed to be slaves to the robots. You know, this is the robots taking over. And this is, you know. I think we met for the first time at the International Astronautical Congress in Cape Town. 2011. I don't remember the year. And I remember you and I and Will Pomeranz, who is now at Virgin Orbit, were having dinner, I think was, um, 
And we were discussing the idea of how to bring more young professionals to the Congress. And this is where we discussed the idea of this paper competition on uh, yeah, spaces business, we called it. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm also involved in that conversation, maybe at, probably at a later time, was Emmanuel David. She, I know, remember, she was there. And then uh, Rakowski or something, there was a woman, I forget her name. But she had a, a Polish last name, but she was American. But anyway, um, your memory is much better than mine. I could not yeah. tell you when we first met, but we've known each other for quite a long time. Yes. Uh, Cape Town was amazing. Uh, and it's because of that experience that I end up going back for my PhD in Cape Town. Um, and right now it's terrible what's going on in South Africa, right? And luckily, I don't think it's happening. All the riots and stuff are going on in uh, Cape Town. I think it's going on mostly in uh, KVN, Kuala Zulu Natal, um, which is a region where the Zulus hang out most farther uh, east in South Africa. But um, it is kind of terrible. And of course, the pandemic going on and raging in South Africa. So it's a real hard time to I get emails from my friends over there from time to time. But anyway, Cape Town was amazing. I don't remember. The that's where you did your PhD, you said. So that's where I did my PhD. So I, I never wanted to get a PhD in engineering. My bachelor's was aerospace. My master's was mechanical engineering. Never wanted to get a PhD. But after working for AST for a number of years, you know, the, part of the job and one of the attractions of going there was helping to grow the industry. The job is to be a cheerleader for the industry. And how do you grow space tourism? How do you grow, you know, orbital human, you know, tourism kind of thing? And uh, that's kind of one. So AST has two missions. One is to protect the uninvolved public from crazies like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. The other one is which to, we will discuss at some point. Yeah, later. yeah, yeah. Yes. And then the other and the other mission is to encourage, facilitate, and promote the industry. And so we have these two missions explicitly stated in our authorization language, which causes some people a bunch of grief, and they think, oh, it's safety versus promotion, and it's a dichotomy. But in one of the books I just read, I love that there was a little phrase in there that said, all hail continuums over dichotomies. Uh, it's not a, one or the other. In fact, every regulatory agency has a dual mission, even though it's not explicitly stated, to preserve nature or to protect the environment or to ensure the safety of the public on one side, but also to, to encourage use of the resource. I mean, in the United States Department of Interior, they built roads so people could go visit the parks. They built lodges and restaurants and gas stations to encourage people to use it and to enjoy the beauty. And so this, this safety and promotional kind of uh, mission, dual mission goes hand in hand with any regulatory. It's a balancing act. Um, so anyways, I loved the encourage, facilitate, and promote, uh, promote mission. And so I, I decided, you know, the government is doing a lot of great things. NASA is doing wonderful things. FAA is doing wonderful things. But there's no, I don't hear anybody coming at it from an academic and organizational perspective. So I decided to get a PhD and I found a business school that didn't require two years full-time of courses. I didn't have to quit my job. I've got a pretty cushy life here in D.C. Uh, so I decided to go to the Southern Hemisphere because that's where all the not, where the research-only programs are. Your choices pretty much are Australia or South Africa. And so I went to South Africa, having experienced it once in 2011, and it was absolutely fantastic then. The wine region is just amazing down there. You know, it was one of the criteria for getting a Ph.D. is being close to a wine region. And uh, Lyon, I was looking at Lyon, but, uh, you know, again, two years of full-time coursework 
I'm gonna get all the French against me, but I, to this day, after living 10 years in France, I prefer South African wine. South African wine is phenomenal. French wine is phenomenal. Uh, hey, to each his own taste. And uh, it's, it's hard to get mad at any of it. So I love it. I mean, I was bringing home 36 bottles every time I took a trip to uh, Cape Town. I went about 15 times. Um, when I was in France, when we lived in France for three years, every time we'd come to the States, we'd bring back 20, 30, 40 bottles. So I've got 175 bottles in my cob at home right now. And, uh, half of it, most of it is French, but anyway, anywho, uh, <laughs> so I, I, so I decided to get a PhD, the, the, not in economics because that's, I love economists. Some of my best friends are economists, but they tend to be hyper rational when they think about markets and stuff. And especially with commercial markets, you're talking about people you're talking about sociology and it this pulls it toward the business side and so the business perspective is looks at markets as social systems not just systems of finances and economic production so um it's it's a, it's a lot more sociology it's a lot more qualitative um in fact um instead of using but in what, fact uh, uh, one of the big nobel prizes in economics in the past years was on behavioral economics on putting aside the idea that economics everyone is rational right right well it's, it, that's, that's right. the opposite yeah that's right and and, and, and there's a lot, big movement in economics evolutionary economics economic sociology there's a lot of work going and a lot of the traditional Roger Nelson, you know, all these folks that are saying, hey, listen, economics is great, but it's, I mean, what they're finding is they model a system using two or three independent variables. And if they write out the equations and they start tweaking the model and things go haywire, are super nonlinear very quickly. And so they're going, this isn't right. We're not modeling it sufficiently. And so they're saying we have to embrace the complexity. They assume a lot of things away. And so little by little, I think they're moving in that direction. And then you've got the business folks coming in a little bit more qualitative, looking not at variance research, which says, you know, here are the functions between the independent variables and the dependent variable. And this is how you can predict the future. But the process research folks in the business community are saying, hey, listen, you don't even know what the IVs are, what the independent variables are. How can you prove that those are the right independent variables, that those metrics are, the, are those indices of the right indices? And so we're stepping back, trying to understand the phenomenology of, of industry emergence, which is basically innovation at an organizational industry segment or popular uh, industry level. And so trying to understand the process of innovation is really, really complicated. There's a bunch of different, there's like innovation meta theory, where there are three major groupings of innovation theories. And so it, it's, it's, it's a super complex um, topic. And guess what? Our managers hate it because it's super complex. They want something that's like drawn in primary colors with squares and circles, maybe a triangle, you know, and here we are coming in with uh, data charts that look like spaghetti. They look like bowls of spaghetti, right? And so try to make sense of that bowl of spaghetti and trying to understand how do you interpret this stuff? It's not just the technologies or the innovations and it's not just the companies or the industry segments, how they're working together. It's the context in which they're operating and they all kind of interact with each other to create the some- system. Yeah, yeah. To create some perceived outcome of these innovations and, and predicting the future is impossible. So the predictive strategy is out the window. So you've got to go more with an adaptive strategy kind of approach, something that says, hey, listen, there are unknowable unknowns out there. And there are things I cannot mitigate. There are uncertainties I cannot mitigate. So now how do you operate within that environment? What information do I need? And so this is where, when we talk about innovation, we're not just talking about technologies and we're not talking about how much money is going into it, but we're, we define innovation very 
the process of innovation very broadly. It's people generating ideas, entering into transactions and relationships with others to create outcomes in a changing institutional and organizational context. So people, ideas, transactions, um, outcomes, and, and context. And all of a sudden you're talking about everything, you know, almost everything. I mean, way back in the mid fifties, a guy named Talcott Parsons was a well-known sociologist. He came up with this, this agile method, this agile model, basically a four-part model of what makes societies, what are the necessary action systems, he says, uh, of societies. One is institutions. One is like resources, like knowledge and human capital um, and people. One is going to be the technologies. And then the last one is society. It's the society of the cultural, you know, the symbols and the beliefs and things like that. And as a business, you know, academic and researcher, you kind of say, okay, I can model the institutions and the resources and the technologies and we'll just, you know, not talk about the society thing for a while. And so that's kind of where we're at with when it, right now. We realize it's there. We realize we, it's hard to model, but we leave that to other people. So the model that I used in my research was kind of those three major parts and how they interact. And it's already way too complex, right? So the research ends up with like a laundry list of here are all the resources and industry needs to succeed, to become long-term viable. Got the list. And then so now we go through and we say, okay, here's how this industry is accumulating this resource. And we identify major events for that. And we go through the system and you can draw lines and showing you can tell stories and all this sort of stuff. But we're still missing the societal part. And ultimately it's about people. And this is why I tell people, you know, when I was in engineering, we used to make fun of business majors, right? And in fact, there's a great uh Futurama episode, season two, episode one called Mars University where the professor has made this hat that he puts on a monkey named Gunther and Gunther becomes really, really smart with this hat and things happen and blah, blah, blah. The, he goes over a waterfall, the hat gets damaged. It's only working half speed. And the professor says, hey, I'll fix that. And the monkey says, no, 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 don't fix it. I'd rather be a monkey of moderate intelligence, put on a suit and go to business school than be super intelligent. And, be <laughs> and so this is kind of the, the, the thing where we would make fun of business majors because they couldn't handle the hard math. But in fact, dealing with people and understanding society, that's the tough part. Hell, once you learn math, engineering is kind of, you know, cookbook, you know? And so it's really kind of interesting how you change when you get old. You, you, I have to tell you, since I moved from engineering to, to communications, it's a lot more difficult dealing with people than dealing with satellites and machines. Anybody who's worked in retail will know dealing with people is not easy. It can be very, very challenging. So you're doing this PhD. That is the, basically what you just explained is a big part of the topic of your research, which just to, to get the whole idea, what, what is the title of this research? Oh, the title was something like the accumulation model of you know, industry emergence for the human suborbital space transportation industry. So it's it's basically and, and oh, and over time I remember that you uh, have done, you have written many papers in which you take these sort of innovation models or industry structure models mm -hmm. and you apply them specifically to spe to specific segments of uh, in the space industry and in some cases to space tourism, right? That's absolutely right. So starting in 20, 2009 or so, two thousand eight or nine, we started. You no, know, I started. It was funny. I started. Uh, 
I never used to read. I would read maybe one book a year kind of thing. And then I bought a Kindle. Yay, Jeff Bezos, right? I bought a Kindle and I started reading. One of the first books I read was Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. And then I read Michael Porter, you know, uh, uh, Competitive Strategy. And then I read Henry Mintzberg, you know, Strategy Safari. And I started reading all these strategy books and I started reading all these organizational theory, industry emergence books. And then finally a friend said, you should go get a PhD because I was doing all this reading. Um, so, a lot of the early books I read had models, had ways of analyzing industries. And so I was going, hey, why not? It might not be perfect. And we might be doing, you know, just a little bit better than a high school level's worth of analysis, but at least it's solid. The analysis methodology is solid. Let's study our industries using these models. So I started out working on uh, suborbital tourism. I've always been interested in the suborbital tourism market. But uh, then we started using, so we started with Clayton Christensen's Disruption Innovation Theory. Then we went to Michael Porter's Five Forces. Then we pulled in Game Theory, uh, Brandenburg and Nailbuff's Coopetition. They have a parts analysis, players, um, whatever they are, the parts analysis, I should remember. Um, and, and so we, and then we would hold workshops, two day workshops where we have group of people um, work on the different parts, the, the First, understanding the players who are the, the, the course, and we would look at it at the industry level. So we look at the players, we look at who the suppliers and distributors are, who the competitors are, who the complementers are, that's the players. And then, the, oh, then do you have the parts in front of you? products that could be substitutes as well. Right, that's right. So, um, so all that, so we would look at all that and then we would write a paper based on that. So, you know, I've got a wiki page with all these papers on it. Um, and every once in a while, you know, we refer to those things. I refer to them from time to time. And we looked at, so applying either Porter's Five Forces, Christensen's Disruption Innovation Theory, the Game Theory Parts Analysis, and then we use some other analysis, right? Um, Abernathy, I did one, Abernathy I did one of papers on the Abernathy uh, Utterback. Utterback. So this is uh, product research and then process research and going through. And the, how you get it, to the dominant design. Yeah, yeah. But I was always more interested in the orbital industry. And you had this interest in the suborbital yeah, tourism, I, and that I, is a I've, very hot topic. Yeah, right now. Yeah, but I was I was going to ask that. What what is it about suborbital? Because that that's a <laughs> because I'm like I'm like Julio, I, and it's like the orbit. It seems to be all about orbital since Gagarin. Yeah. So what was it about? What was it about suborbital that you thought was was, was I, interesting? I guess I thought that suborbital. I actually had a chance at suborbital. I mean, only $250,000. I mean, it seems like a lot of money and it absolutely is, um, but it's definitely not $28 million, right? And so I think I've got- well, Some people are paying 28 millions for a suborbital, which I do not understand. That was a philanthropic uh, auction. And so that would not, I would be real surprised if that was the cost of a ticket. Um, we don't know what the cost of the tickets are, but he did say he's approaching $100 million worth of sales, which was the first time I ever heard them say what their ticket sales were because they never really- We're talking about Blue Origin here. Blue Origin. They've never yes. really acknowledged ticket sales that, that, you know, they said, send us an email if you're interested, but they've never posted a price. Um, Virgin Galactic is, is approaching $100 million, and, but they've acknowledged their um, reservations since 2005. They couldn't get the original $100 million investment from the Virgin Group until they had 100 customers signed up. Um, and that they signed up at 200000 a pop. So if that's $20 million, I hate to do public math, but I forget how many zeros it got. But um, yeah, Virgin Galactic is $600 customer or reservations right now, but they've flown none of them. Blue has actually flown one. So 
you know, until you fly some uh, fly a, a paying customer, you're in what's called pre-production mode. And so Virgin is still in pre-production, but Blue could argue that they're in production now. So we'll see if they, they plan on having two more flights. And if they're flying people who have paid for seats, um, A, we might get an idea of what the seat ticket price is. And B, they'll be in production. They're starting production. I mean, there's, there was a case to be made that Blue Origin was not interested in suborbital, right? They're moving. They're still planning for the new Glenn, which is their large orbital vehicle. They've talked about the new Shepard, the suborbital vehicle, kind of being a testing uh, a piece of a demonstrator of their technology. Demonstrator, how they learn to to do reusability, which makes total sense. But and it makes sense to to then just put some people on top and make money out of it, right? If there's a whole lot to be made, they can make a hundred million a shot with one flight of the new Glenn versus having to fly New Shepard a bunch of times. But if they're going to do it, great, more power to them. They had never talked about doing it. They had never, you know, advertised their reservations and stuff. So the signals were never there. You know, they never talked about like Blue, um, Richard Branson in Virgin Galactic had talked about, hey, going up. And coming back down to the same location is not the be all end all of what we want to do. We want to do point to point. We want a point A to point B transportation. That's where we're headed with this. And so, you know, he kind of had a vision, longer term vision for what he's doing. And we've never heard that longer term vision for the suborbital applications from Jeff Bezos. At least I have. Um, I mean, of course, Jeff Bezos. And also Branson was very public and outspoken about it almost, I would say, since the next day after the X Prize. That's right. I know it was some, some time after, but it felt like it was immediately after, while Blue Origin kept it, everything secret for many more years. Yeah, they, they didn't lift the veil until 2018 or something, right? They, they basically were pretty um, in stealth mode uh, for a long, long time. It's only been recently, you know, and so... Blue Origin is doing a lot of things, not just suborbital, right? They're developing the BE-4 engine. They're working on the new Glenn, and now they're doing the lunar stuff. Um, Virgin, they split off Virgin Orbit. They've kind of been focused on what they're doing. You know, they, they incorporated the um, spaceship company um, manufacturing end of the operation into their um, company. Um, but they've been kind of really focused there. And then when they went public, all of a sudden, heck, now, now all the pressure gets turned on because... Every quarter, they have to say, hey, listen, another $60 million of losses and zero dollars of revenue, <laughs> you know, so, you know, so, and, and the shareholders don't, for some reason, that comes as a surprise to them. So, you know, until they start flying people and they can actually start cashing those checks that they've been sitting on since 2005, 2006, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a while. I mean, some of the people they plan to fly... Aspen Kushner, right? His wife just said, hey, you've got a couple babies now. You're not going up into space. And so he canceled his reservation. Who? Is Ashton Kushner? Ah, yeah, Ashton Yes. Yeah, from that 70s show. I have no, I, 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 it's just a name to me, but yeah. Because the 70s, I lived the 70s. That 70s show is my life. <laughs> I'm not a big follower of celebrities, but uh, yeah, he, he married uh, Mila Kunis. And they were both in a sitcom called That 70s Show that I used to watch when I was a kid. Nice. I mean, that's so, a thing. And, yeah. and granted, obviously, I don't follow them very much either. But that's the customer base right now, right? So, and, and that's okay. I mean, automobiles, when they were first made, were only for the rich. They were each handcrafted, put together, and only rich people could afford them. Um, and so, but over time, you know, by 1913, Henry Ford came along, mass produced them, but a bang, everybody started buying them. Yeah, I mean that that is something that, that that I guess has to be addressed is the fact that 
<laughs> after Branson and Bezos's flights, it's Twitter is is like, and I love your quote earlier on, by the way, about <laughs> all hail the here continuum, continuum over, yeah, over but, but it's, it's like the dichotomy on Twitter is essentially these are heroes or they are the worst. You know, how dare a billionaire do this? Is <laughs> how does the like your organisation? How does the FAA kind of how does it kind of sit with those kind of issues, or does it just try to just completely? just not get involved well so yeah it doesn't get involved and you know i don't think the faa as an organization has a single voice really right yeah there, there's again all hail continuums over dichotomies um they have a press office and of course they won't favor one company over another all that sort of stuff the the, the fact is when you look at how industries evolve or how technologies come into this world, they cost a lot of money at first to do. And then through experience, the operational, operational cost comes down, the safety goes up, and then more and more people can afford to do it. And so um, this is just following that trend. These folks, um, no matter if you agree on how they made their money or not, you know, are taking their money and they're dumping it into a new technology, proving that it can be done, generating you know enough uh, buzz early on to hopefully make it safer and cheaper. I mean, this is what happened in aviation. I'm a lawler, so my L's are hard, but Louis Blériot in, I forget, early 1900s, um, he made his money selling headlamps for automobiles. He took that money, started designing airplanes. So design number 11 was the one that crossed the English Channel and won the London Mail Prize for crossing the English Channel. And so I'll, um, it's, it's just, this is what People who make a lot of money in one industry do, you know, they try to push the boundaries on the next industry. And so it's it's kind of normal. Uh, you know, not everybody's perfect. This is why I love Marvel comics. Uh, their heroes are flawed. These are flawed heroes that, that we're looking at in real life. Um, Elon Musk, I love Tesla. I own one. I love SpaceX. It's absolutely fantastic. Sometimes he says and does things that is totally I wouldn't agree. With kind of thing. So I mean, yeah, whatever. I have to say that that to me is something, uh, and I know Matt might think, but I think that something is like it. I like that aspect in which they, as you said, they are flawed, because every time you see someone that is perfect, is not because they are really perfect. Is because they have a whole machinery of press people and PR cleaning that image constantly. Right. Yeah. So I like when when you can see the flaws as well. It makes them more human. But I mean, Twitter's limited to what 280, 280 characters these days. There's only so much nuance you can perceive. And plus, I mean, to get followers and whatnot, you've got to be as extreme as possible. So you're going to take an extreme position. This is why I got off of Twitter way back when. Um, it, it's not a it's not a nuanced discussion going on on Twitter. So it's a loud it's a loud megaphone. And so I mean I totally get it. I you know oh there's problems here on Earth. Why are we, why don't we solve these problems before we go off into space? Number one, this is their money. They get to do with it what they want. At least here in the United States, if they want to go out and jump down a hole, dig a big hole and jump down it. That's up to them. They can knock themselves out. Um, number two. You know, it's, I've got this beautiful 3D printed coin here. You know, there's two sides to the coin. And so you want to maximize the awesome and minimize the suck. I'm sorry, I shouldn't point it that <laughs> when I say suck. You want to minimize the suck and maximize the awesome. So 
this is a part of maximizing the awesome. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We want to cure cancer. We want to get rid of COVID. We want to minimize the stuff. But at the same time, you got to celebrate things like James Webb Telescope. This is maximizing the awesome to be able to see back in time in the history of the universe, you know, by yet another order of magnitude or whatever it is, you know, that's phenomenal. And so this is where space does a great job. They maximize the awesome. It sparks the imagination and people can glob on, they can latch on to, oh my God, it's going to ruin the climate, all these things. It's possible. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, Robert, compared, it's, it's to, I mean, compared to a number of airplanes flying every day. Right, but that's a rational argument. And, and you know, it was funny. I just watched a, th a video on YouTube where they were talking about trying to convince people of something. Hitting with facts and figures doesn't change their mind. But like this was the case. This was the case. I think it was COVID. They were talking about trying to convince people to take the vaccine. Giving them facts and figures about the vaccine doesn't do it. But showing them the effects of the, go, pulling at their heartstrings. You know, dealing with them as people, not as Winning machines. hearts and minds. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. The people that are good, often, yeah, often that doesn't work either. And it seems true. to be, it's it's almost like FOMO. It's like, well, everyone else is having it. Right. I mean, that's that tends to be the one that works. I mean, the, 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 the argument that I kind of see creeping in with it is with the, with something like space tourism, there isn't, it's, it's harder to see the further goal with it. Unlike something like air travel or cars and, you know, the, the ones that you mentioned earlier that were sort of made by right, right. billionaires in the, in the past, you can see that the car will eventually become really useful right. for the, the general public. Whereas space tourism, is it, is it going to be, is it going to become something that's useful and kind of, uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, I mean that, even though, even though the costs are completely different, I can think of the example of when I started listening to MP3 files 20 plus years ago, and it was a bunch of nerds that had computers with a powerful enough sound card that could process that. And it eventually ended up changing the whole music industry. Right? right. So maybe this is step one. Maybe this is the first application of many. Well, number one, absolutely. In terms of innovation, seeing the future is not a, a, the skill that we possess. Right. Number mm. two, um, when I was looking at the different different modes of transportation, or looking for analogs to uh, suborbital tourism, I looked at aviation. I looked at steamships. I looked at uh, automobiles. Like you said, in those in those types of modes of transportation. Basically, the government stepped in and said, hey, this would be a great way to get mail from here to there. Why don't you carry mail? With the aviation industry, they gave them the Kelly Mail, mail Act. You know, they gave them contracts to move mail from point to point. Um, and primarily it was mail. There was some passenger traffic that was going on, like with steamships and stuff. Um, and you don't get that with suborbital tourism. There's no need for mail. The thing that the, the analog that came closest that I was able to find, talking about a technology that was developed by the military, kind of made so that non-military for not converted for non-military use, and then tried to make a tourism industry out of it, is submarines. So this is where it's semi-interesting. You didn't need to move mail from some point underwater to some point underwater. So we didn't get a mail uh, contact from the government. It started as a military thing, but it kind of, there are submarine tourism companies around the world. There are not a lot of them. And you know, like in Hawaii or in places where people go scuba diving, I imagine, where you're- Yeah, just now, uh, I don't remember the name of the company. They just started again doing tourism down to the Titanic. 
so a few weeks ago. So this this is the close, and I don't really know that much about um, submarine tourism, um, but this is kind of the industry that I think has got probably the closest analogy where it's uh, harsh environments, right? Uh, so adventure tourism, it's probably expensive, but, and you got probably got some eccentric person wearing with a big long gray beard, you know, and wearing a not a ratty t-shirt that takes you out on tours. And so who knows, maybe that's where suborbital tourism is going. I have no clue. But uh, like you said, it's not really analogous to some of these other things because there are some other uh, factors at play. The only other industry, which is non-transportation, which seemed like it was analogous, was computers, actually. So computers in the United States, at least, was entirely government-funded the early days from the early 40s and whatnot, and it was IBM. And But the thing is, by the early 1960s, they came out with the 360 that accounting companies really wanted there was there was a there was a huge demand for it and so they were able to to get wean themselves off the government contract and go into the non-government world and be successful um and open up commercial operations so this is my not so subtle segue into how do you define commercial you know and why do all of a sudden you know do we care most industries don't ask the question of what is that commercial they just kind of are commercial because they have a a large non-governmental customer base whereas in space at least i get wrapped around the answer of what is commercial there was a uh Kalos foundation and secure world foundation report that came out in february of 2021 that it was, it was called lost in translation it was talking about how people look at the Chinese commercial space, act or space activities and they can't tell whether it's commercial or not. They, and, and they say, we can't tell how we need to react based on what's going on in China because we can't tell if it's commercial or not because we don't know what commercial means. And so the question of what is commercial now is the, the next, that's what my latest papers and stuff are about. I mean, my definition would be, is the product offered openly in the commercial market? Okay, let's say it's offered and the only customer is the government. Is it commercial? Depends on how many governments. One government, one government. Well, You're making a rocket. Yeah, it's going to say Dragon, for example. It's not, <laughs> is that commercial? No, Dragon, Dragon well, well it no, is commercial. Dragon, is, Dragon is used for more than one client. So, no, it's not com it, it is commercial. We're talking it about is, the you can pay to access it. I was going to say, Crew Dragon is going up with Inspiration4, which was bought. It's an all non-government crew. All the exactly. Right, right. Yeah, so it is commercial. By the way, going back to the submarines, OceanGate is the name of the company if you want to look into okay, it. Okay, I'll have to yeah, check that out. In. Yeah. Um, another, uh, when you were talking about military applications, Suborbital was all about the military. Suborbital started because we wanted to do point-to-point -point transportation of, of nuclear yes, payloads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, so, and even today, I could imagine that it would be a very attractive product if, if you could Suborbitally place your troops wherever you want. And, and there, don't think that uh, the, DO, the Department of Defense hasn't looked at Starship for doing exactly that, right? Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, you made the point more than once in how bad we are at predicting the future. Mm -hmm. So, tell us, what's the future <laughs> of this so, of this industry now? So, so this is another thing that I. It's great. So, in my latest talks about what is commercial. There's two points. Number one, when it comes to new markets, um, one of the foremost evolutionary organizational uh, theorists on the planet, um, Howard um, Howard uh, Aldrich, down in North Carolina, don't know him, 
but he read some great books. He says, a lot of times people don't know what they're doing or why. And it's true. You see companies that go out starting with one thing. They have an idea to do one thing. They talk to a couple of customers. The customers don't, don't answer the questions the way that you think they're going to answer them. So all of a sudden you pivot, you know, the company pivots, right? And so the companies are groping around in the dark, trying to make sure that they're answering the mail, you know, satisfying the customer needs. And so it's, even the people that kind of are providing or want to provide the service are kind of in the dark and they're trying to figure it out as well. So people don't know what they're doing and why. And then you have Clayton Christensen in his 1994 book saying, hey, listen, this trends, which was an organization, uh, industry group looking at um, storage media, you know, disk drives and stuff. They would try to predict the future sales of established uh, types of disk drives, larger disk drives. And they would be very, very good at, at predicting what the markets would be. But when it came to the newer disk drives, the ones that were getting smaller and smaller with larger capacities, they would use the same methods of predicting and they'd be way off. They'd be off by 300%, you know, either direction. And so the people who were smart at predicting the future for the traditional incumbent industries couldn't, you know, couldn't predict what was going to happen with the new entrant industries, the uh, disruptive innovation in industry. So the same sort of thing here. Uh, FAA, for example, makes predictions every year on projections every year on aviation industry. How many people are going to fly, how many miles, all that sort of stuff. And I'm sure they do a great job. But they're also trying to predict commercial space launches and stuff. And for, all, for some reason, they're all surprised when they predict they predict some number of launch and reentry operations, and it turns out to be some totally different number. Um, so we're just really bad at predicting things that are new and partially because the people who are doing it don't know what they're doing. They're kind of just trying to, they're trying to survive. And this is another reason why the business perspective, the sociological perspective seems a little bit more realistic than a purely economic perspective. In economics, it's all about efficiencies and profits and self-interest. But in business, it's about legitimacy and power and survival. So a lot of times companies will make decisions that are financially irrational, but because it's a survival thing. You see this all the time. So, so again, life is a lot more complex than the way life is modeled when you make all these different assumptions uh, about how things operate. But Yeah, I, I remember reading a book called Super Forecasting, I think it's called. And it's a it's a great book, but there's a there's a there's an email from Donald Rumsfeld to Bush where someone has I can't remember some some woman has has written down what everyone was talking about at each decadal review, and it's so wildly out each time. Like you know, it's like if you were British in 1900, the French would be your enemy. Ten years later, they're the ally, and it's like it just goes through like that all the way through, and it's just like you you can't tell the future at all. And we're not even talking distant future half the time, right? You know. It's things, so many things go into it. And we think we understand cause and effect. And of course, cause and effect is itself a cognitive construct. And, and so trying to predict the future is kind of crazy. However, having said that, so I put out a survey, bit.ly slash industry dash emergence, where it says, how many, how many decades will it take before suborbital tourism is flying hundreds of passengers a year, right? Um, hundreds of passengers for Virgin Galactic, they fly what, four, six at a time? They would have to do 16 flights. They'd have to be flying once a month, twice a month to get to hundreds of passengers a year. Um, and so when do we think we're going to get to flying twice a month for 
virgin. That's probably one to two decades away. It's not one to two years away, right? We thought they were going to be flying back in 2008, right? It's been two decades since they flew. So it's probably within one decade, maybe two. Um, but then I started asking, so fine, how, when will orbital tourism get to tens of people a year? And it might be there fairly quickly. I mean, four people are going up later this year. And I think Axiom has contracted for three or four flights already. So at four or five passengers time, you could get to tens of passengers fairly quickly. So again, one to two decades probably um, for that. But then I started asking about, suborbital transportation, hundreds of passengers a year. And I don't know if you remember in, I think it was Guadalajara, when Elon Musk at the International Astronautical Congress put out the video that showed his starship on a, on a super heavy booster. And it showed, first it showed a boat taking a bunch of people out to this platform. And then it showed a bunch of people walking across a, a gangway to the, to the starship. And to get to that, I'm looking at the number of people walking across there were dozens of people in that in that shop, and presumably this is a flight that's taking place once a day, maybe twice a day. To get to that level of adoption, that's decades away, and it's not because the technology isn't here. The technology would probably be ready in a decade. It's the people. We're the we're the weak link in the chain. Adopting it, accepting that, taking that for granted, being well, being able to afford it. We're the weak link. There were studies that were done by, there's a guy named uh, Mensch. What was his first name? He was an economist, Mensch, 1974, 75, something like that. Um, stalemate of technology, he wrote a book where he basically, he said, in a, in invention, something is invented over here. By the time it's, in, from the time between it's invented and the time that it turns into a product, innovation process, turning it into a product that somebody uses, that can take anywhere from 50 to 100 years. And it's not because the technology isn't there. The technology was created. It was getting people to accept it. And it's, you know, there's a huge lag. And sometimes that lag is very short in cell phones and apps and stuff. And so I suppose it depends on a bunch of things. But he was looking at the electromechanical industry of the late, 18, uh, late 1700s or 1800s. And he was looking also at the chemical industry uh, primarily in Germany in the 1800s. That led to all the alkynes and alkydes, right? Which these are the dyes that they were creating back then that they ended up turning up and trying to use as cancer drugs in the early 1900s. Um, but looking at those industries- I'm thinking that yeah. sometimes the, the the way to the product or the technology is so culturally ingrained that it will take a generation at least for full adoption. And the, for me, the clear example is self-driving cars. Man, they're great. Uh, they're great. I'm sure. All the logic says we should all be using self-driving cars today. Right. But I don't see that happening until a few decades, until there is a generational change. That's probably right. Well, and 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 so cars, it's going to be easier. I think it's going to go faster with cars. So. I do own a Tesla. Um, it, I do have the autopilot and auto navigation. I don't have the full self-driving yet. And it is wonderful. It makes driving long distances much, much easier, much less tedious. Um, it's amazing. But for example, that same technology, put it in three dimensions, drones and airplanes should be flying themselves as well. And yes, people will be uncomfortable being in a plane with no pilot, but hey, you know, you just saw Jeff Bezos, his brother and Wally Funk and the 18 year old go up in a vehicle that had no pilot. It was just fully autonomous. The problem with adoption for um, self-flying planes is gonna be air traffic control. 
the unions of air traffic control are not going to admit that it's safer to have them autonomously flown than having people control it. So self-driving cars are anywhere from four to 10 times safer than people driving. Uh, well, I mean, this is, I mean, that, that's always my theory is that eventually it's going to be the insurance companies that are going to push us into driving, you know, having self-driving cars. If you, if you want to drive your own car, then your insurance is going to be 10 times as much, right? No, that's absolutely right. And insurance companies absolutely can act, act as private sector regulators. And Mark Twain writes about this in Life on the Mississippi. When there were steam pot, steamboat pilots and there were two captains on each steamship, um, the, the, they created a union and the union pilots had a special key that would unlock boxes. And in the boxes would be notes from the previous captains that had gone down the river because the Mississippi river, I guess it changes all the time. I mean, I mean, I know nothing about the waterway navigation, but I guess it's not just simply driving up and down. I mean, there's a lot of complexity that's involved and they would write down this, the information that would, it was safety information that would go into these boxes so that the captains, if they were members of the union, would have these uh, keys and they could get that information. And there was fewer accidents on the ships that had union captains. So um, it turns out that the insurance companies would raise the rates for those steamships that did not have at least one union captain on board. Um, and so same way, I've talked to um, industry insurance folks in the commercial space industry saying, hey, you guys could act as private sector regulators. The government doesn't have to do it. You could require that the flights be fully autonomous, or you could require certain standards based on research. And he's going, nah, we're not going to do that. They're going to rely on the government, which is, come on, American. The private industry should take this up. And Peter Drucker sells this all the time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems odd, doesn't it? Because you would think the insurance companies are just all about the statistics and the and the money, right? And they will. And maybe there just isn't enough statistics right now. And, you know, this is one of the market failures when there's a negative externality that comes out of your, you know, some industry action or something. Ideally, the private sector would figure out a way to profit from rectifying that externality before, you know, having to have regulation come in and be mandated by the government. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Yeah, well, no, you brought it up that, that insurance actually could do quite a bit. And I've thought, I've thought about, you know, hey, you know, we should sell, you know, passenger experience experience uh, insurance on these flights because I don't know what the requirements are for going up in Blue Origin or going up in Virgin Galactic. But I've talked to people that have gone through the centrifuge testing to experience the acceleration profiles of these uh, um, suborbital vehicles. There was a woman I know of, she runs a gymnastic organization, she's super fit. And if you looked at her and just, you know, had to figure out would she be okay with this check, you'd say, not a problem, go. You know, she can do headstands and backflips and whatever. You know, she's super fit. She got in there and because of some physiological something, she felt like an elephant was sitting on her chest and she thought she was gonna die. She thought she had just, it felt like she said that she had run a marathon and this is just on the ascent. And they still had to come down where the G profile is actually a little bit worse. And, and so she was, she was taken out. And so can you imagine going up and paying $250,000, getting in a cabin with six strangers, and then the person next to you freaks out, totally pukes all over the place or something. What if I sold you insurance against that happening so that if that does happen, you get, you know, you get, your, you get, a, you get to do another ride. Having, having been on the on the parabolic flights, on the Vomit Comet, which there's a reason why it has that name. If you would ensure, if you make an insurance against people puking on flight, it's gonna be 
it was going to be a very expensive insurance well, to make a profit. Well, 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 and I'm not, I'm absolutely not a businessman and I'm not ever going to go into that business, but I have heard that vomit comets different than a single parabola. I mean, vomit comets is how many parabolas on zero G it's 10 parabolas. Vomit comet, typically it's 20, 30, 40 parabolas here. You're talking about just going up and coming down. So actually all the docs say you can either treat it with medicine um, or just, you know, Mission prep, just don't eat something a certain number of hours before. So with a single parabola, it's not an issue. But somebody having like a physical condition where everything has to be locked down or somebody going crazy, you know, it's totally possible. So unless that training is required, I would not want to get into a cabin with a bunch of strangers unless everybody has at least gone through the centrifuge testing just so they know what to expect. I, I just want to go back to this this, this idea. I, I know you don't want to call it a dichotomy, but there does seem to be a, a, there does seem to be a bit of pressure between trying to like uh, like endorse this kind of new tourism and 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 everything else, and and the fact that I think most people perceive the FAA as as the as the people trying to you know make it all safe and make you know do every, regulate it basically. It's so, a balancing act. It's a balancing act. Our goal is not to make it perfectly safe i mean that's we can't so basically i see it as a triangle where you've got public interest on one side you've got government interest on another side and you've got industry interest on the third side all three sides want safety but all three sides also want to do something else that's not safe i mean on on like and again going back to the uh, and you could say that they have the different tolerance to risk sure, sure they absolutely do for example if the government has a big national security payload on a big rocket they have to put into orbit but if you did all the analysis they'd be violating the you know um, safety you know limits and all that sort of stuff you think that's going to stop them from flying no, they're going to violate the public safety limits and they're going to put that satellite in orbit. So they'll violate public safety if it's, in the, if it's in the interest of national security. But our job is to make sure that industry doesn't get away with it. The industry can't violate public, you know, the public safety limits. So, but like, like I said, with the Department of Interior, you have a bunch of people that want to go into the forest that want to hug the trees and say, this is absolutely beautiful. You have a bunch of people that want to like wrap down the Colorado, create a bonfire, pull out the guitar, sing songs, drink beer and go nuts, you know? So, I mean, so you've got people that want to do both. You've got people that have conflicting interests on the public side, on the industry side and on the government side. And so it's, it's not just single dipole. It's a triangle with a whole bunch of conflicting interests. On all yeah. So, um, so your triangle is almost made of each side is is made of a different material almost isn't it you you've got like different tolerances on on each side and and i guess that how hard is it then to sort of get everyone is there, are there any arguments because presumably when you're working in a kind of in, in that environment where there's no set rules it's not like if this then that it is a kind of discussion because because like you said it's on a continuum so is, can it can it be a fraught place to work where people have varying opinions, or, or is it actually quite a kind of <laughs> it's, harmonious place? It, it's super busy. It's a super busy place. If I got my numbers right, last fiscal year, and we count fiscal years from October to October one to September thirty. Last fiscal year, I think there was like thirty six operations that we regulated. This year already, we're at fifty one. So just the number of things happening, the number of licenses, the number of re-entries is just really taking off. The number of people working at FAA has been increasing too. So, but everybody is super working really hard. 
um, on the regulatory side, on all sides, but you were talking about the regulatory side. So, so it's really, really busy. There is, again, it's a balancing act. There's a, pre, there, absolutely want to ensure the public safety, but on the other hand, our analyses aren't perfect. They're probabilistic. They're not deterministic, right? So the actual line of what is safe and unsafe is more of a blurry gray area, right? We tend to go to the left, to the conservative end of that blurry gray area. We're doing a lot of work now to try to, through our research program, to try to make that, that blurry gray area less blurry, you know, but it's still gonna be gray. It's not gonna be a solid line. And so we're trying to do that. And, and so that's where some tension comes in. We say you should be here in the blurry gray area and the company says, that's trying to fly says, no, no, you should be over there on the blurry gray area. And so that, that creates some tension, especially when you have like a CEO that's tweeting really dickish things. Um, so, you know, you just deal with it. <laughs> yeah, there was a situation. Yeah. What can you say? Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was just actually wondering, I, I remember this whole situation of them launching while the... There was, I think there was the FAA inspector mm -hmm. that could not make it and they launched anyway. And now they're building a launch tower, but they didn't get fully the environmental analysis approvals yeah. or they're doing it at their own risk. Yeah. So I don't know much about the launch tower thing. Um, the launch tower thing, if they haven't done the EPA, the environmental stuff, that's, that's a tough nut to crack because environmental studies are take a long time and they cost a lot of money. And if they didn't do it, it's like if I, you know, I live in the historic district here on Capitol Hill. If I decide to concrete over my front yard, because I don't like nature, you know, the DC government's going to come and say, you can't do that, you know, take it out. So I'm gonna have to break up that concrete and take it out. So, I mean, it could happen. So this is what's, so let me, there's a couple branches of tangents I want to take here and I don't want to take all the time, but number one, in, for SN8, serial number eight of Starship, they were going to fly. They ran into an abort situation or something. You know, they aborted the countdown and the window of available time for them to launch closed. All of a sudden, whatever they were doing violated the public safety limits. The FAA inspector said, you're done for today. And they said, no, we're not. We're flying. And they went and flew. So that is a breakdown in safety culture. And so what the FAA did, consternation of many people in Congress and up on the Hill, they said, you, SpaceX, will have to show us how you're going to revise and improve your safety culture before we let you fly again. And they ran it down to the wire. They had to delay their launch of SN9 by a day because they hadn't submitted the last little bit of that analysis. But FAA, AST, to their credit, used this as a developmental opportunity, a teaching moment, right, to get FAA, to get SpaceX, at least the Starship part of SpaceX, to clean up their act. To, to, to Maybe you guys should be giving a self-destruct button to the... In case they fly outside of the well, but the, but but I mean, that's a little extreme, but okay, that's right. <laughs> um, but we used it as a teaching moment. There were a lot of people that said they should have been fined, and the, the heavy hammer of the government could have been brought down upon them, and we did not do that. 
Um, so anyways, they did conform. They complied. They learned from their mistakes and supposedly everybody's, you know, happy with everybody from now on. However, what this points out is in, remember I was talking about there's three meta, there's in innovation meta theory, there's three groupings of uh, innovation theory. One of the groups called functional goal models of innovation uh, theories talks about different relationships of industry groups to government groups. And I'm oversimplifying it's internal, in, um, the internal um, units, which can be industry, and some government or the external units to the industry, which could be mostly government, but maybe some industry. So when the internal, when the industry units are weaker than the government, external units, then they can have two different types of relationships. One is called the dependence relationship, where the, where the industry says, you government, you more powerful government, tell us what to do and we'll do it. They feed all goal setting to the stronger government. They, they, they're very reactive. They're dependent on the government. And this is a, a relationship that I think reminds me of the space race era. It reminds me of a lot of space industries now, where if the government tells me to do it, I'll do it. I remember there was a uh, <clears throat> conference way back in 2003 or 2004 where a SpaceX, uh, 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 an orbital ATK guy got up on stage. Um, they were in part of the COTS program, Commercial Orbital Transportation Services program. An orbital guy got up and said, if the government asks us to do it, we'll do it. You know, that's our goal. Then he got off stage and a SpaceX guy, who, these were the other participants in the COTS program, SpaceX guy got up on stage and said, we're going to Mars. You know, and, and so they had their own goal. So. Um, so when the government is super strong and the government's weak, there's and the industry is weak, there's this dependence relationship. Uh, if the government is strong and the, in, the industry is weak, the industry might take a different relationship called an accumulation relationship. And this is where they accumulate all those resources that they need to become independent and to grow away from the government. The government might be needed early on in what they call a technical techno proto market or uh, but but a niche market. But they want to grow beyond that. When the industry unit gets stronger and stronger and stronger, they enter into different types of relationships. And you look at some industries like U.S. automotive industry or tobacco industry, where ultimately the industry starts flipping the government the finger, telling us, you know, what's good for us is good for you. You know, we'll tell you when we're ready to comply. So they get into this fortification, what's called a fortification relationship. And sometimes my friend makes great cars. Displays behavior, which could be you could characterize as falling into that fortification relationship, you know, flipping the finger. Yeah, I mean, does presumably that that starts to play into innovation as well, doesn't it? When you've, or does it? I mean, does does that affect how how innovative companies are? Companies start out innovative, and then they tend to slow down, they tend to focus. I mean, after the Model T was introduced in 1913, a new model was not introduced until the late 90s, 29, 29, rather, in the late 20s. Uh, so, I mean, a company will be super innovative and then they'll like clock in. And that, well, once they find the cash cow, yeah, once they find the, the dominant design, yeah. the established product, that's it. once you are there, you, you I mean, innovating, doing new products is not efficient. It's not, it's not where you maximize right, the profit, right, right? right? So once you found that 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 
application where you can get the income, that's when you switch to an optimization of your processes. That's right. How to make that product, but simpler, cheaper, safer, you call it, whatever your market needs, so you can maximize your profit by turning that product in as close as you can to a commodity. And, and so that's when, so all the innovation effort goes from the product to the process. And then, but once you've optimized that, then all the innovation is gone because you're you're just turning the crank. Yeah. But that's what we did in the in the switch from uh, from Ariane five to Ariane six right. was a full focus on the process, how to reduce the cost on the process. Yes, there are many parts that are new because you have a rocket that is system thirty years old or forty since it was designed. So there are certain parts that are obsolete and you make new ones. But the focus was to switch to a optimization of the manufacturing processes, how to optimize yeah. that to reduce the cost. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, but Elon is still super innovative. He's still got a goal. So he's still going for it. Uh, I guess in this model, you'd say once he achieves his goal, maybe that's when, you know, he just maximizes efficiency of the process to achieve that goal. Cause he needs, he needs hundreds and thousands of flights to get to millions of people on Mars. Right. So, um, you know, he'll probably optimize that process, but the system will probably, like you said, dominant design lock in, and once he gets it up and running and go from there. So innovation moves from product to process. And then once that's optimized, innovation stopped pretty much because he's just turning the and, and until when you have the disruptor coming in with something different, right. which is what we're going through for the past okay. decade and a half. Yeah. So can the regulator actually get involved with that kind of helping the disruptor we can get involved by getting out of the way right um so th this is what we're trying to do right now we're trying to figure out how can we predict the future see what innovations are coming and then figure out what's the best way we can ensure public safety but get out of the way of the innovation and so we're trying to do that and i just made a pitch this afternoon to my boss saying we have to use uh you know process research an adaptive strategy to do all this you know, qualitative data collection and these institutional arrangements, resource endowments and proprietary functions, which is a huge lift in terms of qualitative data. I mean, you're collecting tons of data, but once you've got it, number one, it's mapped out, it's reusable, it's high quality, it can be used to develop management theory as well as adaptive strategy, you know, tactics and stuff. So it's, it's really, really useful, but guess what? Nobody in the industry is doing it. This is totally new in the industry, so nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about. They look at me like I'm crazy, and they know I am. But when they go and talk to, and so when managers don't know if something can't judge quality, they got to turn to a colleague that they trust and say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" They're going to say, "He's nuts. He's crazy. We've never heard of this before, right?" So it's 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 an uphill battle. I'm still fighting uphill on this one, but uh, if I can pull this off. Basically, expand my PhD research to other industry segments that we regulate, and I really understand the industry so much better than we currently do. Then that'll be a major win. And the major win is that this data then is made public to everybody. So, I mean, ultimately, and the, the heavy lift is going to be mapping out the major historical events that show the emergence of the heavy lift orbital transportation. So that's going to be the fun industry segment because that goes all the way back. You know? Wow, have you got any kind of gut feeling about where that where that goes, or you know, being now you're sort of in the in the swamp of the data? Do 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 you, do you have an insight? Well, so so I I really don't. Um, 
what I'm interested in looking at the data is the phenomenon, the, the process by which this is happening. So you can ultimately predict. And by understanding the phenomenon, you can then start saying, well, this independent variable, this metric or this index is important, and this one's important, and this is how they are related to this mediating variable, and that's how they uh, affect this dependent outcome, which could be whatever you're talking about, number of firms or you know, number of launches or whatever. But and that's kind of what I'm interested in, but my bosses don't care about that stuff. They, you know, they again want to know the future. They want to know the answer. They want me to have identified that theory, tested it uh, through variance research, you know, with all the statistical analysis. Here's the hypotheses, here's the data, here's all the p-tests and the t-tests and blah, blah, blah. And so therefore now I know the equation, so now I can tell you the future because I've got the, the uh, equation. That's what they want. They want steps two and three. And we've not, we haven't done step one yet. So, you know, a lot of people are saying here's here's steps two and three here's what we've got you know and we've taken surveys of people uh, that said they'll buy tickets and you know they've got certain networks and all this sort of stuff but we don't even know if we're asking the right questions we don't understand the phenomenon that we're so it's to model yeah so you're like you're building a crystal ball but you're making sure you're doing the glass blowing first. Yeah, we've got to make sure we're, we're still collecting the sand, right? We're still collecting yeah. the sand. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but they want to know. Yeah. They want to know what's. Yeah, what, tell, use the crystal ball now. Yeah, I love that. That's really good. That's really good. I'm going to use that one. Yeah. So, so I mean, so where is it going? What do I want to see from the data? I would love to see number one. Number one, this will be great when we get this data because it'll basically provide a visual encyclopedia of how these industries have emerged. And you'll see companies coming in and going out. You'll see number of launches going up. You'll see number of conferences taking place, number of patents you know, occurring. You'll see investments to different companies happening, the number of licenses given, laws passed, standards created. You see all that. And, and what it kind of does, again, it comes out as a big spaghetti chart. And you see how complex these things are. And, and to... When you start seeing that, it's sort of like the overview effect, right? You go up to you mm. go up in space. Oh my God, Earth is beautiful. It's so fragile. There are no boundaries. I love everybody. You know, you take a look at my. You take a look at the data maps we create. You go, Oh my God. You know, how do I think? How did I ever think I could predict what's going to happen? How did I ever think? You know, this is gl gloriously complex. The problem is again, complexity and simplicity are two sides of the same coin. You need to you need to see the complexity, embrace it complexity, figure out where the important parts are, and then zoom in there and, and simplify that part. And so right now they're trying to simplify without understanding the complexity of the situation. And so, is this the sort of thing that machine learning and, and, and AI can have a crack at, or is it too... To some extent, they can. I mean, we still have to collect the data. Um, and then we can use machine learning, and I have a negative reaction to just using machine learning and AI to go out in big data to basically randomly or look for causation, which may or may not be there, not based on hypothesis, but based on just the, the brute force approach of looking at everything because an AI can do that. Personally, again, I'm just against that, but if it works, great. You know, it might find stuff that's nonsensical or it might find stuff that's sensical. So absolutely, that could be used. Um, but we're going to start with, and in fact, we, we want to use machine learning to classify the data, to help us classify the data. Going through the process of, after you've collected the data, of processing the data can take hours and hours and hours. And we have to use machine learning and data dictionaries and bada bing, it can be done in seconds. About 90% of that work can be done in three seconds. So you could spend just the last 10% going over it to correct the mistakes or to validate the results of the machine. So absolutely. Um, GPT-3, 
which is like the latest open source AI, billions of parameters, and GPTJ, which is another version of that. And GPT-4 is coming out, would be great at this. I, I could hardly wait. GPT, if nothing else, I would like to use GPT-3 or GPT-4 to take the research kind of papers and just rewrite them in a way that uh, facilitates communication, you know, because and they and I don't know if you've seen the different examples of how yeah. GPT three has done that, but if we could use GPT three to kind of make our data, our results more accessible to the common person, that would be a major program, you know, major application of GPT three, which I think would be super useful. Because all of a sudden, I would just run my stuff through GPT three and then hand it to my bosses, and they could understand. Yeah, I mean, this is this has been an amazing. Amazing chat. I definitely didn't expect chatting to the regulator to, to go into 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 this area. Is it is it is this something that you find often when you when you talk to people that they that they don't really expect regulators to be like in in this kind of field, or is it just you, Ken? Is it just Ken? You that's the- Ken. <laughs> I uh, the other day when we discussed that we had this very short window of time where we could have this recording. And I told you that that's not enough time. And I thank, thank God I didn't uh, try it because my, my Ken, next meeting afterwards. Ken has been the custodian <laughs> of all these data related to all these emerging industries, to uh, space tourism, suborbital, micro launchers. Uh, I mean, whenever we want to talk about one of these industries, I, I knew that that was not going to be enough enough time. I, I actually have still a few questions that I want to ask you more on the practical side once you are back to reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, I apologize. I'm a, I'm a talker too. I, I, I getting thirty uh, second uh, answers are not my forte. No, no, I love it. I mean, that, that's what the, that's what podcasts are for is mm-hmm. is for is for long rambling answers with, of, of the type that we've got. It's been absolutely amazing. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoy. And you know, if we're not having fun, you know, I do it. I mean, my my favorite yeah. my favorite movie or the movie on which I base my life, my life philosophy, is based on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Right from 1989, <laughs> the two major messages there were be excellent to each other, which is the golden rule, and party on, dudes. You know, have fun. And so, <laughs> done. <laughs> party on, dudes. Well, yeah. I mean, the, n- now you've told me the backstory. The bit that I can't believe is that that you you were yeah you were doing the te- the the substitute teaching job. Yeah, that's kind of wild. <laughs> I mean, that's that's. <laughs> you know, I mean, at least you're old Jim, man. Well I was trying fun. to teach him ultimate frisbee. I was trying to teach him ultimate. <laughs> brilliant gone julio what were your practical questions well i mean <laughs> i feel like now i'm going to get all serious again uh but you mentioned way back when in this interview that um you you said that blue origin has already booked 100 million in tickets that's what they said this is something they announced yeah no um jeff bezos mentioned that in the post flight uh, interview and then you were doing the, the mental exercise on the number of reservations for Virgin Galactic. Yeah, that was just, and yeah. I remember, well, Wally Funk, which, by the way, apparently, when I was reading up on her, she was the first FAA female inspector, so a colleague of yours. It's amazing. I mean, Wally Funk, the, I mean, and this is the hate Bezos, love Bezos. I mean, look what he did with his tickets, with his available seats. He flew freaking Wally Funk who should have been flying 70 years ago. She was part of the Mercury 13, right? So the fact that he did that, I mean, 
Jeff Bezos is building a 10,000 year clock in the base of a mountain, right? This is a guy that fished two F1s out of the ocean and refurbished them and put them in his museum and gave one to the National Air Space. He just one of the episodes we had was with the guy that recovered those engines. Amazing. So, I mean, yeah. it's amazing. He gave 200 million to National Air and Space. He just gave 19 one million dollar donations. I'm sure you guys got one. Uh, one million to Space Generation. Uh, yeah, oh, no, no, I mean, none to the interplanetary podcast, which which was a bit. <laughs> You know, you know I'd, I'd had to cry myself to sleep the other day. It's awful. But we don't want to owe anyone anything. We want no, to be that, that is true. We wouldn't be able to slag him anyway, off anymore. But it's amazing. Going back to Wally Funk. Yeah. Wally Funk apparently had already booked a ticket with Virgin. Right. So then I'm wondering how many of, the, when we are questioning, what, what is the size of the market for these tickets? And I'm wondering, well, how many of those tickets are actually double booked? How these guys with too much money to book these tickets, they just, okay, whichever flight comes first, I'll just book both. Well, so, then fine. so fine. Um, Virgin Galactic had sold 700 tickets. Then on October 31st, 2014, they fell out of the sky because the guy flipped the switch too early. And so the number of reservations that got returned was about 100. So they're down to about 600 reservations. They'll say they're double booked, 300 individual customers. No, no other company ever in space industry could say they have 300 independent customers. And that's a big deal. So when I start talking about what is commercial and I, I look at variation selection retention, variation is kind of the number of independent companies working on a, uh, a system of technologies within an industry segment. So that's the number of companies. Now, selection is the number of independent funding sources, right? Whether it's government or not, but the, and retention, the retention force is the number of independent customers. The proxy for retention would be the number of independent customers. And so 300 is a huge number in the space industry. Uh, it's huge. So I would say it's pretty darn good commercial market, you know, demonstrated demand. I might, I might start buying shares then. Well, maybe, I don't know. That's gambling. That's gambling. I don't do that. Oh, yeah. No. I don't. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. But no, so I would say that they've demonstrated through their their ticket sale reservations, Virgin Galactic, that they've talked about openly since 2005 or so. I think that's a great demonstration. That's the best demonstration of a market that we have because Blue has never mentioned it. And I mean, SpaceX, you know, yeah, they're launching a lot. But, you know, they're basically launching their own satellites half the time, right? So they're their own customers. So they're just vertically integrated into now the satellite internet market. Launch is just part of the supply chain for that for them. So, um, but they're, but obviously SpaceX has a bunch of independent customers, but it's not 300. So, yeah. so, so orbital tourism is pretty they're, strong. Their biggest customers themselves in a way. Again, yeah, they're integrated into their own chain for yeah. another industry. So... Uh, and then I, I read something online the other day that start, start, started me thinking. I, I, I would love to, to know the opinion of the regulator as, as Matt is calling you. Uh, so when we have launches carried by the government or by a company on the payroll of the government, mm -hmm. with the government having the monopoly on violence, mm -hmm. right? They can... Uh, they can, uh, let's say, uh, ask ships not to occupy certain area of the ocean because of risk of uh, debris or cancel flights or at least have a no-fly zone. And like you, you mentioned before, the case of, of defense, and if it is a defense payload, of course, it makes sense. And if you 
fail to follow those instructions, the government can do something about it. Now, why would Delta um, stop flying over a certain area or uh, lose revenue because some billionaire or some tourists, so some tourists want to go into space, for example, or why some I don't know some shipping vessel will lose one, two, three, or week a week of re- a week of income because of uh, launch operations in a certain area. You you see where I'm going? Yeah. Once it's government, it makes I understand how it goes, but once it's just two companies competing for different, completely different industries, completely different segments, but one is compromising the revenues of the other. Right. This happens every day in different industries, but I wonder how it applies in this case. Well, so in the, so again, I'm talking as Ken, not as FAA regulator, but the way I understand the problem is, and, and the problem typically is flights off of Florida, um, heading east at some azimuth, in uh, disrupting the flights between like the Caribbean and the north-south flights flying up and down the east coast of the U.S., especially during Thanksgiving, which is, the, those are big, big, big tourist uh, travel times. Uh, the problem is that um, planes have got to either slow down, they have, they have a, a bunch of different strategies for making sure that the planes don't enter the hazard area. And how big that hazard area is depends on who you're talking to or how big that hazard area should be depends on who you're talking to. If you talk air traffic control, when they normally look at hazard areas, they look at 10 to the minus ninth, I think it is, uh, in terms of where the the lines are drawn in terms of probability of fatality or whatever. Whereas AST works with 10 to the minus sixth. So if, if, if air traffic is drawing the lines, it's much bigger than if AST is drawing it. and so when Falcon Heavy flew on February, what was it, 18th, 2018, whatever, there was this huge hazard area that caused a bunch of flights have to either really slow down so they didn't enter the hazard area by a certain time and thereby adding time onto their flights um, or they had to go around the box, the keep out zone, uh, adding miles and increased fuel consumption and time onto their uh, flight. So all this adds up because you got a 200 people or 300 people sitting in the airplane and some number of passenger miles. The numbers get pretty high, pretty big. Um, and yeah, if this was a space shuttle taking off, everybody would just salute and say, oh my God, that's absolutely wonderful. We love it. But if it's a company, SpaceX taking off, they say, USOB, you know, why are you cutting into my profit? So it, it's... Which is not even, it's just putting a car in space in this case. It's not even... Well, but Let's and say, so that's so they're saying, hey, you're only just putting a car in space. You're this is frivolous. What are you doing? Um, and so, you know, I understand the the company's perspectives on this, but I think part of it is also gets to the question, and this is where I try to put it into a context of research. You know, this to get to the question of is is your access to the airspace is that a right or a privilege? Right now, it's offered it's offered to you. The system is offered to you by the government operating a monopoly of air traffic control at zero cost to you, the company. So now, you know, maybe there could be a system instead of making it free to everybody, maybe people should pay for access to the airspace. And therefore, if, if, if some company is going to launch a rocket and it's going to impede people's flow in the airspace, that maybe they should incur a cost to doing that. And the other people could be compensated by having 
not being charged for their access to the airspace for that time. You know, maybe there's a way of compensating for it by actually charging them overall for access to the airspace, which right now is free. Um, so. Well, I mean, that's a bit like the electromagnetic spectrum, isn't it? I mean, you've got this finite resource and, and you do sell off the yeah, right, of right. the magnetic spectrum, don't you? Yeah, so. right, and, but for some Not reason, even that, just tolls on a highway. Yeah, but for some reason, highway, we, we, yeah. we make the, in the United States, we make the airspace free of charge to anybody who wants to use it. And it's a scarce resource and, you know, tragedy of the commons and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there are different ways to, to look at how to regulate um, how the government could regulate and you know to make that more fair because there are these these kind of conflicts and these kind of disputes cropping up all the time. This is this is what I get when whenever I go to the International Strategic Congress, which by the way Ken has been the chair of the Entrepreneurship and Investment Committee for how many years now? Since 2011, I think it was. Yeah. Okay, and I come back from those sessions and with a long reading list. It's it's really amazing what he has done with that group over the years. Um, yeah, it, it's it's always you always go into a black into a <laughs> rabbit hole. And so the keynote speaker for session E six point three, which is our academic session, is going to be Jennifer Woolley. She did a historic a historic event analysis for the nanotechnology industry. So the same thing I did for suborbital, she did it for nanotech a number of years earlier. So I, I am I, she's going to be giving a talk about industry emergence and commercial space. Uh, right. I'm not letting you go before we ask you the the question we ask all of our guests, which is, tell us your your space song. David Bowie is not allowed. Okay, okay. Space. space Odyssey is not allowed. <laughs> Said too many times. What's your space music? I'm gonna have to say, you know, for the uh, Yuri's night a couple years ago, I did a video of me singing "Take Me to the Fly Me to the Moon" on Uke. I was playing the You Can Sing and Find Me the Moon. Tell me that's online. Uh, it's it's it. absolutely online. You can oh, find a link yes. to it. We'll find <laughs> that link and put it on the show notes then. <laughs> Thank you very much, you guys. Thank okay, you Ken. Much. Thank you Bye again. Friends. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! <laughs> right, there you go, Julio. I, I massively enjoyed that interview. Thank you very much for getting Ken on. He seems like a total legend. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know Ken for many, many years. I always enjoy, every time I meet him, I end up learning a lot. And I thought, I, it's often that I have these multi-hour-long uh, conversations with him. And I thought, well, that, I think some other people could benefit from, from them as well. I just love the fact that he used to be a teacher. They managed to get, because <laughs> that kind of, I think, oh, there's still hope for me yet, Julio. There's still hope for me yet. I could do something amazing with my life. <laughs> you are doing amazing things with your life. Oh, Julio, Imagine how stop many it. people you are inspiring. <laughs> oh, you, have, beautiful. You, you, were, you were podcasting about that, space come, before come space was cool. Yeah, oh, that's true. Before no. all these rich kids were playing <laughs> in going to space, you yeah. established your podcast empire. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, enough about me. This is embarrassing. Julio, what do you think about this news story that Jeff Bezos might not get his space wings after all? Yeah, well, funny. We, we, I mean, we had this whole conversation with Ken, who is from the FAA, and then we read this today that is mm. coming from the FAA uh, today when we are recording, I mean, just after mm -hmm. the interview with, with, with Ken. 
the date of this uh, the date of this is uh, from the BBC News from the 23rd of July right yeah and it says that the FAA is redefining the the commercial wings the commercial astronaut wings program so, so how you get your astronaut wings via the FAA and they say that to qualify as commercial astronauts they must travel 50 miles or 80 kilometers fair enough but aside from that these would-be astronauts must also have demonstrated activities during flight that were essential to public safety or contributed to human spaceflight safety. There's a little bit of me that kind of goes, yeah, I get that, because as soon as we start getting people paying to go up and they haven't really done much, it does seem a bit silly to make them, to call them astronauts rather than just tourists, space tourists. But... I think that Jeff Bezos, being that he's the person that's kind of paid for the whole system and presumably has been involved with it and then tests it on himself, I think I think he has made some contribution to space flight safety, hasn't he? Um, you could argue that. Um, I think it was uh, also quoted in this article, the Bob, the Blue Origin CEO, Bob Smith, saying that there's really nothing for a crew member to do while they're flying. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly pointing yeah. out how automatic it is. And, and you can also say that you did all this safety testing. You, you don't need... They did safety tests with mannequins, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you do your safety testing. In the case of Virgin, you had to do it with humans because you need the pilots. I know, right? but both Branson and Bezos have paid for it. You know, it's, it's their program, after all, isn't it, really? I mean, so... I, I mean, if you if you would grant astronaut wings based on the advancement they made for the space industry, then I can give you a list of several dozens of people that would also need to no, but they, get but, those wings. Yeah but, like, yeah, but they haven't been to space. Like, like Elon no, but, Musk, no, no. for instance. But, no, but he hasn't been to space, so he hasn't got his astronaut wings. You need to do both. But uh, then again, the definition, demonstrated activities during flight that were oh, essential Jerry. to public safety or contributed to human spaceflight safety. But then again, this is the commercial astronaut wings program of the FAA. You have other ways to, to get astronaut wings. You can get, it, get them as well through the US military, through NASA. Mm. I mean, you could get cosmonaut if, the, if, the, if Russia gives cosmonaut wings or not. But, uh, but I, also they quote in this article, they say that the, uh, an FAA spokesperson told CNN they are not currently reviewing any submissions. So it also doesn't. It also means that they did not submit to try to get these commercial astronaut wings mm. from the FAA. So I but, think it's honestly <laughs> now the the more we talk about it, the article is about nothing. It's just as usual <laughs> trying to raise some sort of controversy when that where there is none. Okay, I, well, I let's, think in both let's... cases they all got astronaut wings. Yeah, organized by the companies themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned, but Red who, Bull gives you wings. <laughs> no, but you mentioned what astronaut gave uh, the 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 astronaut oh, it's Chris, yeah, Chris, Chris, Chris Hatfield, Hatfield yeah. to uh, that was to Branson Richard to Branson yeah, yeah. Oh, who Dickie gave Pickles. the astronaut wings to Jeff well, I don't Bezos. know I, I don't was there a ceremony with 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 Jeff Bezos I didn't I see that know. I didn't follow that so much no I, d I didn't see it I, I was but okay let's get to the real controversy which we mentioned in the in the interview with Ken which I thought was a little bit unfair of me because it's like putting him on the spot about what he thinks. But 
what do you? Th- I mean, the the real controversy is is really there seems to be this stupid dichotomy of of they're either evil billionaires who are ruining the planet with their carbon footprint and frivolous space tourism, or they are heroes developing the new frontier. Well, you know, Matt, I know you have been watching For All Mankind. Mm-hmm. And there is a particular episode that comes to mind here called The Grey, right? Nice, right, in which, yes. In which there is, uh, no, I mean, not to go into spoilers, but uh, we seem to live in, in, in the world today, thanks or by fault of social media and clickbaiting, in which everything needs to be black or white. When in reality, we live in a gray world, right? Mm-hmm. And you should not evaluate. I mean, it, again, I, I'm not fully on board with either of them, but I'm also not fully against. Everyone does good things. Every, everyone does bad things. And it's, it's impossible for anyone today, these days, to live up to the standards that we are setting ourselves against in social media. Hmm. If you speak for something, you are speaking against something else. If you are keeping silence, then you are, they treat you as if, because you're silence, you're validating something else as well. Okay? <laughs> Think about these guys. They, um, Jeff Bezos, for instance. Hmm. Yes, Blue Origin, New Glenn. Uh, New Glenn could bring more competition to orbital spaceflight, reducing costs even more, um, mm. unlocking potential uses of space that could be much more beneficial for the environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Know, example, lot, I know, solar space power, one of them, okay? Yeah, I'm, yeah. Or, 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 or just move... I mean, if we are to believe Jeff Bezos is... Yeah, but that's and, the, the one of moving industry to space... Manufacturing yeah. in space, okay, that's more long term. But one yeah, of but the... it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We've got to get there somehow, haven't we? And, and Bezos, exactly. and Bezos being a student of O'Neill, probably really is on board with that. And the same with Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk kind of puts his money where his mouth is with with you know carbon capture prizes. He does lots of talks on on global warming. It's not like they're deniers, the, is it? We are criticizing these guys, which are advancing our industry. Yeah, exactly. Am I? Always in agreement with the way they do things. No, but who am I? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, no, no. And because they do things the way they do, they are changing yeah. everything. I welcome it. And and just think of all these other billionaires that are in their yachts. I'd rather Bezos and Branson spend their money developing new systems and putting their money into technology than than buying Rolex watches. And and fashion garments and stuff like that. I'd rather do that. I mean, I, I'd rather everyone get taxed more. That's for sure. Because then we, as as society, as governments, we can decide what's best for us. But I also rather these guys think, or at least have a belief, or where they should be there spending their money on that is more productive than just again having the wild life and, and but they are not the, they are not the only ones eh? they, they, I mean there are many examples of of, of uh, billionaires or millionaires that turn to uh, scientific research not necessarily connected with space yeah. but you have yeah. all these other ones that are like funding uh, research vessels ships to mm. do ocean research 
Yeah. That's pretty cool as well. Here's my problem with the people that moan about it. And and it's and it's more to do with like Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. Well, if you have the opportunity to be a billionaire, you take it. And and it's not his fault that he's not being taxed enough. Because he's hardly going to go, oh, actually, can you tax me more? In fact, he may have even tried to be taxed more. So this is the thing that annoys me is like governments or anyone who actually is the person that decides how to tax people, i.e. people who vote for governments, who decide how people should be taxed, then they are to blame. It's not the person who doesn't pay their tax because all you have to do is legislate so they do. It's not Jeff Bezos' fault he doesn't pay enough tax. Yeah, but then it's not those people creating those taxes. It's those people... Who is going to vote for the one that says, I will create more taxes? Well, this is well, exactly right. So it's society, it's society not Bezos. Yeah. It's not Bezos, is it? And we, we live in a broken society. That's what we are discussing. We're, li- we're living in a broken society, and it's good that these it's guys not broken, spend the money though. the way they do. Exactly. It's not broken, though, because the actual reality is that, that these billionaires like Bezos and Branson pump it into building up things that we wouldn't have if we left it to governments to do. And so in other words, like government couldn't spend their money like this because it would seem too frivolous to the public. So there is, in in some ways, it's quite clever that the system seems to be broken because it's actually not. It's actually a subtle continuum that the system's on. It's not right and it's not wrong. It's just the system that we have that actually works pretty well. Now, let's... (laughs) <laughs> not think that these guys are doing the investment in space for philanthropic reasons. Space is and will be very strategic. Yeah. And these guys, as cheesy as it sounds, by opening this new frontier to more commercial use of space, mm-hmm. this is trillions at, at play in the yeah. future. For everyone. Not tomorrow, though. maybe in a few yeah, decades, but, but it's trillions. But for everyone. And but for everyone, right? So, that, so they're so they for generate. everyone. But if they get there first, yeah, yeah they there make, will be yeah. trillions for everyone, out of which they will still get eighty so. percent. Yeah, but yeah, but that, but that's it. You, we, but you've got to encourage people to do that, haven't you? I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it, it always seems so silly to, to have this thing of. I'm not. I'm not. Where, where, where will, not, where will I, people I'm not draw the you line? You should discourage them. All I'm saying is, let's not be naive. One no, can no, talk no. about no. Uh, building industry in space. If you build industry in space, if you build industry in space, who's gonna make money out of it? Well, name name one thing that you do where you where it's not trying to further Julia Apreya's life and make his family richer. As in, everyone making has the this same. Podcast? <laughs> that is true. See that? No, see that um, does show that does show that you're a very. But Matt, what, what, okay, let me. But, it, 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 it's, it's, it's but everyone, it, everyone, is everyone is trying to make themselves richer, right? And more. And, and I don't. I don't think everyone is trying to make themselves richer, but these guys or, or, are, and and they're doing a damn good job at it. And again, yeah. space. Okay, uh, it's it's Musk trying back, to make himself richer. Let's or go back to important. the space manufacturing industries mm-hmm. or whatever that what Jeff Bezos wants to create in space. Mm-hmm. Okay, he wants to enable building manufacturing in space. <laughs> manufacturing is a huge source of capital and, and richness as well. So if he has such a stake on that, and in a way in which 
it's more competitive if, if somehow it's more competitive to do it up there than down here, than down here someday. The guy that's not currently he already controls the world. He will then control space. It isn't. He. Um, I read one of those books on the space. Uh, you need to be much. You he need was to be always charitable. interested in space. Surely. I think he had a connection with sets. He, for part of this flight, they gave a million to many organizations. I think we mentioned that during yeah. the interview, uh, including Space Generation, very dear to my heart, including, I think, the Challenger Center as well. Mm. It's amazing organization, uh, inspiring people, inspiring kids to go into this. We live in the gray. And I stand yeah. by that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, we, we, live, we totally live in the gray. I just think everyone misses the point when they see billionaires doing things. I was having a thought the other day where I was listening to someone going, yeah, I took a helicopter trip over the Grand Canyon and it was amazing. And I was thinking, God, I can't afford that. And I was thinking, God, it's so annoying that people slightly richer than me can afford to to just do frivolous things and like the fly, footprint fly, on that the carbon footprint. Ride. And it's like, at what point do we draw the line on the wealth that people have to do things that are enjoyable in life? I think nowhere, because where if the moment you start doing it, then it's like it's a race to the bottom. No, but the ones the ones that criticize these guys for going to space with a certain carbon footprint should stop immediately all those package deals to go to Canary Islands or yeah. the yeah, yeah. Mediterranean Islands for the summer or whatever, whatever they go in, in yeah, the, that's, that's the what I'm Caribbean saying. or, it, it, or it, they should, they should yeah. immediately cancel their, their, their cruise trips. It's completely, it's just posture. Is it, is it, you want to be online and posture yourself as virtuous and look at how I'm, it's just I, Do you know what? This is the most political I've ever been, but I just think it's, I just, that there's something about people trying to do, that we should encourage people to, 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 to put their money into technology and, and space. <laughs> what they're because, doing here is brilliant. Yeah. What they're doing here is brilliant. And, if you want eventually to improve the world environment, mm -hmm. you need to do a lot more in space. Mm -hmm. Because by reducing carbon on Earth, what do you want? You want to st stop productivity? You want to grow less crops? You want to have less food for, for people? You want to reduce the population? I mean, what do you want to do? You have to count on space. If the planet cannot take it anymore, you have to expand or you have to move those carbon guilty industries. Have you into not space. watched have you not watched the expanse and seen see what happens when you expand into space though, Julio? All the problems still remain. Oh God. So much so much for a short episode. So um, much for a short episode. Oh well, there we go. I'm sure we can discuss about this controversy for ages but a great great philosopher once said haters gonna hate <laughs> haters are gonna hate oh I, I i'm gonna put in the link as well i'm gonna put in the show notes the 
letter that the NASA administrator sent to the nun about uh, the nun complaining about how the Apollo mission they could have spent all the money saving people and he wrote one back basically saying giving her a story about how well I'm going to put it in the show notes it's it's just it's too good it's too Not good anymore, I, exp- I don't know about it that you can do both you can feed people and and absolutely you should be spending money on medicine and helping poor people in the world but you should also be spending money on research and and trying to further humankind absolutely absolutely that is why most working governments spend uh, and depends on the government substantial or not amount on basic research yeah I shall also put in the link of Donald Rumsfeld's letter to, to, to President Bush and the how you can't see into the future. I'll put a link to that as well because it's so good. That's a good one. But I did mention that. Yeah, it makes me think. Ten years ago, we were analysing the coming of the electric propulsion telecommunication satellites and the whole discussion was if they have electric propulsion and they will take longer to get to geosynchronous orbit, Will there be more orders so that then you have them some on the way? But will then, with this is all, with this means that they require less propellant so they will become smaller? Or will just the, num- the payload increase and still carry the same size of satellite? That was a discussion. In the end, what's happening is you have these mega constellations and, and the geosynchronous telecom market orders of satellites crashed and that was n- not none of the scenarios was that no well and 10 years ago people weren't thinking of reusable rockets either well they were yes, thinking of, well ago, yes well no musk was but everyone was poo-pooing it 10 years ago going it won't work yeah yeah you're right hmm. you're right you yeah, had it- the true believers and the rest of the world Yep. <laughs> and the true yeah. believers were quite small in 2011. That's for sure. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, but once you demonstrate, yep. others will follow. Indeed. So I wonder what we're poo-pooing now that's going to be massive in 10 years' time. Yeah, well, we just had a whole conversation about what people are poo-pooing now. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 10 but years from now, those same people will be taking a cruise to Jupiter and back. I don't think 10 Maybe years. Maybe a few, but down a few decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah and the yeah. carbon footprint of those, oh, oh my God, in I'm, the amount of carbon you're going to be releasing in outer space in vacuum. Oh, that's a good point. I, you know those really lovely posters of space tourism where it's like a, a sort of 1920s art deco picture of yes. someone going yes. ski, I, skiing I, I on, on Europa. I love yeah, I, yes. love, I love them. I bet half the people that were complaining about Branson and Bezos have those posters in their house, <laughs> unironically. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> on that one, what do you think? Matt, Matt, if people, if, if people want to know more about the podcast, if they want to see the show notes, mm-hmm. where should they go? They should go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. If you can't remember that, it's it's an orgy in space. But it's the um, uh, but <laughs> if you want to get super involved, you could also nip over to www.patreon.com/interplanetary. 
It may even right. be easier to, to remember. And that way you can join all the Spodcats on Discord and things like that. And we have ever so much fun. And we've had some brilliant uh, discussions in the Discord about this very subject. Some very passionate beliefs, but uh, they do seem to fall on the side of the stuff that we've been talking about. But I do know that there's people in the Discord who I think potentially disagree with others in the Discord. Maybe they can speak up because it's a it's a free place. Julio, what are you doing this week and have you got something to plug? I have interviewed on the Spanish version, Interplanetario. I have interviewed Raul Torres, who is the CEO of PLD Space, one of the micro-launcher companies uh, in Europe. They are developing a micro-launcher. Obviously, the interview is in Spanish. We go for about an hour and a half. Uh, very interesting interview. Many, many topics that normally are not, you know, hmm. not discussed at length. Uh, so for those that understand Spanish, they might want to pop in and listen to that interview. Brilliant. And I shall put a link to Interplanetario. Was that good? Or was that Spanish, too, too Italian? Italian? Yeah. Interplanetario. 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 No, that sounds more Russian. Can't do it. I can't do it, Julio. Sorry. Right. Anyway, Julio, shall we uh, let the listeners go? Because we've held them prisoner for far too long. <laughs> Hostages. Hostages. Hostages yeah. to banter. That's it. Yeah. Bye, okay, bye, 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 bye. Bye, bye.